this morning, we're continuing in our five-part series of life together in the community, the Christian community, the church that Carlton just spoke of and that we confessed about. And uh, as an introduction, I want you to think about just giving and sharing in general. You know, as image bearers of the Lord who made us, all men have a capacity for giving unto others. We can give unto others, we can give unto organizations that serve others, or we can give unto God. But for the purposes of illustration this morning, think about how there's a sense in which we can't really give unto God because He's not tangible in this world in a way to actually receive the offerings we give to Him. We certainly give unto God, but not in a tangible, practical way is what I'm getting at. So, if you understand my point, there's a sense in which all giving, all sharing, is unto or with others. So, with that thought in mind, I want you to think about how that that is an illustration. That's a manifestation of the common grace of God in mankind. The giving that goes on among people of the earth is a manifestation of the common grace of God, just like rain is a common grace of God. You know, the blessings of family is a common grace of God. And so as we think about giving in general, I want to start with a couple of illustrations to illustrate uh, worldly sharing and worldly giving. You may remember in October of 1988, um, off Point Barrow, Alaska, in the Arctic ice, there were three gray whales that were trapped. Uh, an Inuit hunter found them, and uh, filled with compassion for the whales, he took a chainsaw and started cutting the ice, trying to make a path for them to get out to the open water. Of course, you know, whales are air breathers. They're mammals. They're, they're our brothers. Um, you detected a little sarcasm. They're our brothers because we're all part of Mother Earth. Um, I love whales. Um, I, I do. I love whales. I love all animals. But uh, <laughs> I just don't love them as much as I love people. But anyway, our brothers were trapped in the ice there. And so one thing led to another, and this just spread like wildfire. Biologists got involved. They called in a sky crane helicopter, and they were going to take a five-ton ram and try to break up the ice to the sea. That didn't work. They tried to get a barge in. It got trapped in the ice. That didn't work. And soon it got down to Anchorage, and it was publicized in the paper and on the news. And so then it spread from Anchorage to the lower 48. And, of course, you know what happened. Publicity went crazy. The world started responding. Contributions start rolling in to save our brothers trapped in the ice. And so um, people start demanding the government to get involved because this is a national crisis. So the government sends up NOAA representatives and governmental biologists, and they even have the State Department contact Russia. Russia gets involved and realizes this is not just a national crisis. This is an international crisis. And so now they send in two icebreakers trying to cut a path for them to get free. Well, contributions and volunteers increase, and they even name the three. It's uh, given Bonnet, 
cross, beak, and bone. And uh, after two weeks, their health deteriorates, and the nine-month-old calf dies. And, but finally, icebreaker gets in, cuts a path, and the whales disappear. Because of their deteriorated health, nobody knows if they lived or not. They didn't put radio transmitters on them, and so nobody knows if it was successful. Total cost, total contributions, and governmental spending, $2 million. Okay, second illustration, much more serious. April of last year, April 27th, you know, a band of storms formed in Mississippi. Uh, EF5 tornado hit near Philadelphia, Mississippi. And shortly after that, many, many tracks of severe storms started appearing coming across Alabama. One of the worst ravages of storms and tornadoes ever in the history of the state. In fact, uh, the National Weather Service recorded over 260 tornadoes that one day in the eastern United States, 59 of which were in Alabama. In Alabama alone, there were 200 and um, I forget, 249 deaths, something like that. But I know this, north of Ohatchee, an EF4 tornado came through from St. Clair side, crossed the Coosa River, and went north of uh, Ohatchee and Silver Lakes area. And 22 people died, 22 people of Calhoun County. Hundreds of homes, I think 250 homes demolished on the St. Clair side. Hundreds more on the Calhoun County side. Devastation. $11 billion worth of damage. Over uh, $3 billion in Alabama. Contributions poured in. The response was overwhelming. Companies got involved. Individuals got involved. Uh, relief agencies got involved. And the response was really an amazing show of kindness and grace by man to man, right? Well, as we ponder that, I want us to think about our third illustration, and that is the New Testament church that's just been birthed in Jerusalem. Um, as Dave and Carlton have already preached to us about in Acts chapter 2, this church is brand new. They're in their honeymoon. Christ was crucified dead, buried, and resurrected. And the church did what he said and waited until they received power from on high. Their giving and sharing as a New Testament body, as our third illustration, as our third example, is quite different. It's as much different from the other two as the second one was from the first. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. That's an extreme statement. I hope after we go through this, you'll agree with me that that is indeed the case. What are the differences between the way unbelievers give and share and the way believers, the way regenerate people give graciously and share abundantly with each other? This was truly the first Christian church. You know, when America was founded and people moved from town to town, everybody was anxious to get in and establish the first Baptist church or the first Methodist or the first Presbyterian. This was truly the first Christian church. And 
it was very foundational, very unique, and first in many ways. Um, we know that uh, this group of disciples gathered, and they met, they worshipped, and we know from uh, our previous studies that Peter arose to speak. And when did he arise to speak? It was on the day of Pentecost. And as you remember, there are three Hebrew festivals in which the Jews are commanded in the Torah to come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And that's the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits, and the Feast of Booths or Tents. The Feast of Booths or Tents is in what we would call September or October. But both the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Booths or Tents, both of those are in the spring. We know Passover is on the, it begins the Friday night following the first full moon after the vernal equinox, which is in the spring on our calendar, March 20th and March 21st. And, and let's just say, for the sake of argument, many historians have argued about when Christ was crucified. Most people agree it was between 30 and 33 A.D. Some have even gone back through calendar comparisons and come up with the date of April 3rd, 33 A.D. Just for the sake of illustration, let's take that date. April 3rd, 33 A.D. Pentecost means the 50th. It's the 50th day after Passover. Passover started on Friday. It was on Saturday, the Holy Sabbath Passover, which was Nisan the 14th Friday, Nisan 15th uh, Saturday by the Jewish calendar. 50 days later would, have, of course, been a Sunday. Seven weeks, one day. So on Sunday, the first day of the week, Pentecost started. And as we're told in Acts chapter 2, which you can go ahead and be turning there, Acts chapter 2, we're told that it was about the third hour. Jews numbered all their times during the day from 6 o'clock. At night, it started at 6. In the morning, it started at 6. So the third hour would have been 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m. on what would have been, by our illustration, May 23rd, 33 A.D., things really broke loose. Peter stood up and preached this powerful sermon, and he really focused on one thing, and that was the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In particular, he focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look in Acts chapter 2, um, say in verse 24, it says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Or in verse 31, when said of David, that he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Or verse 32, where Peter says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And so then kind of summary statement in verse 36, Peter says, Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, he's declared the gospel with great power. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's the response? It's overwhelming. People from all over the world, all the 10 to 15 different parts of the Roman world at that time, Jews had come to Passover, and they gathered there. Jerusalem was a city of about 100,000 normally, but we know from records from like Josephus and uh, the numbers of animals that were slaughtered even at the time of Christ, Jerusalem had at least a million visitors. Think about that. A town of 100,000, say 
something about like Tuscaloosa. Well, I guess that's not unimaginable, is it? Tuscaloosa can sometimes swell quite bigger than it really is. But anyway, not a million. Imagine a million people coming to a city of 100,000. There's no way the inns can accommodate it. So what happens is they end up staying in houses. They end up staying on land in the barns uh, or wherever they had. They stayed there uh, in the hospitality of the people. They shared one thing, and that was that they were Jews. But other than that, they had nothing in common. So here is this great throng of people who are there for Passover. Many of them stay until um, Pentecost, or the Feast of Booth starts, because it's only 50 days. If they have the means, they stay there. But many go and come back. But nonetheless, you've got up to, or even more than a million people gathered there. What's the response of this Holy Spirit-empowered gospel proclamation? As verses 39 and 47 of chapter 2 of Acts says, As many as the Lord our God will call to himself, he, God, was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the first Christian's church started out that morning at 9 a.m. with 120 disciples. And before noon, at the end of Peter's message, 3,000 3, genuine converts not decisions, 3,000 genuine converts had been saved. And in fact, if you go to Acts 4, verse 4, we see that by the end of the day, the number of men only who believed had grown to over 5,000. So think about that. 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 20,000, easy conservative estimate. So they went from 120 people at 9 a.m., to 20,000 by the end of the day. That kind of rapid growth causes some problems. You know, church growth movement is one thing, but that is overwhelming. But, but remember this. This was a great church growth. This was a great revival. But who did it? God. This was a move of the Holy Spirit of God who empowered His Word, the power of God in the gospel, and people responded. But this explosive growth was both a blessing and a burden. So that finally brings us to the text I have, which is next in line of the verses 42 to 47 in chapter 2. I have verses 44 to 45. So they should be on the screen. And this re I'll read those. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. So immediately do we sense a little bit of difference in the sharing and the grace giving that's going on among believers versus what may happen with unbelievers. But as a parallel passage, I want you to flip over two chapters to chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 of Acts... Here's a parallel passage about the same congregation. Just uh, as early as Monday, the next day, this is uh, within the same week of this Sunday, this miracle Sunday of Pentecost, in Acts 4, verse 32, notice how this is a parallel passage to what we just read. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own 
but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So, these two passages about this first Christian church tell us much about their motives, about what is genuine sharing of the saints, what is genuine generosity of the saints. And so I, I want us to pull this out. And without getting into a lot of detail about exegesis, because it's really not necessary, this is simple, direct wording. Um, we just go through it quickly. Look in verse 44. First of all, um, think about the foundation. Carlton's already preached to us about the foundation of where this church stood in verse 42. In verse 42, we saw four things that they were practicing. And in fact, if you look at those four practicing works as the foundation of this church, and just for quick uh, refresher, that's the truth of the apostles, the tie of fellowship, and the table of communion, and the throne of prayer. Those four things. With those foundational practicing works, what now should be the church's functional practical works? If you understand the difference. You've got practicing works things that are spiritual in nature that might not necessarily be functional or practical to meet the needs of the body. You see my point? Like, we're here to worship, but does that really meet the needs of somebody in the body if they have a need? Well, it does, but it doesn't practically. So what are the practical works that now need to be built on the foundation of the practicing works? And if you were asked that question, what would you say? If somebody asked you, what are the practical works of the church? Would you obviously say something like reaching the lost with the gospel, right? Evangelism. But what is noticeably absent here? What's conspicuous by its absence in this passage? Evangelism. Evangelism is never mentioned as either their practicing works as a foundation or their practical works as a function. So, how does that get accomplished? Because were they evangelistic? Has anybody been more evangelistic? You have 120 in your church and you end up at the end of the day with 20,000? That's pretty evangelistic. Yet that's not one of their foundational or functional works. So these two texts are so important in the teaching of what gives us insight into how God used their sharing, how God used their caring, how God used their giving to each other to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, verse 44 identifies who these people are. All those who had believed. The verb for believe literally means those having had believed. And these are church members. There's not even a church role. And as verse 42 says, they're continual believers. They are spiritually alive. Acts 4.32, the parallel passage, supports that. It says that these people are those who believed. So the church is for believers. Imagine that. The church is for believers. Now notice where they were. 
They were together. Verse 44. They were together. They instinctively knew that they could not be a body unless they were together. As Carlton just spoke, and as we confess, the church has to be one. We have to be together. And of all the metaphors that Christ uses to describe the body, think of them. You have the temple, you have the flock, um, you know, things like that. But what is the one that symbolizes unity more than any other one? The body. There can be no body without unity. So to be unified, we must be together in every way. Practically, doctrinally, in vision, in purpose, in passion. And they were. They were together. Singularly unified. Again, supported in Acts 4.32, as it states that they were of one heart and soul. That's pretty much together, to be of one heart and soul. Now look at how they were. We saw who they were. We saw where they were. How were they? They had all things in common. That simply means that as a unified body, they shared in everybody's life in every way. What one had, in effect, all had, right? They had all things in common. They shared blessings and sorrows. They shared gains and losses. They shared tragedies and excitement. They shared, they shared earthly possessions and heavenly treasures. They shared everything. God was the source of all they had. And so they were simply stewards of what had been given to them. And so they held everything they had in open hands. All that they owned was in an open hand. They didn't pool it together. Uh, verse 32 in chapter 4 supports this again. It says, Not one claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. That does not mean that they pooled it all together or donated it all. There is a difference, right? They, they viewed everything they owned as from God, thus available to others. So this is not a commune. This is not communism. This is Christian community. There's a big difference. It's not a commune. It's not communism. It's Christian community. They simply enjoyed fellowship and needed to be together. They fed off this incredible, extraordinary sense of camaraderie they had being ignited and sustained and unified by their common confession, their common conversion, their common commitment, and most of all, their common Christ. Jesus was their bond. Jesus Christ was their bond. He's the one who made them more than brothers by blood. The bond that he brought them into was much stronger than any bond we can have due to earthly family. He is the one who made them so unified, so together, that they shared all things in common. Then the next verse, verse 45, tells us what they began to do in these practical works to meet the needs of the others as, the, as they arose in the body. Since so many people were not residents of Jerusalem, and now the little 120 congregation was 20,000, obviously people started needing support because they stayed there in the excitement and the teaching of the apostles and uh, to be grown in this new faith. So God enables them to meet the needs of the body. But he does so by also giving a gift to the people, and that is a breaking of their enslavement to things. We know that what? The love of money 
or the love of things is the root of all evil. So if the gospel not only breaks our bondage to sin so that we're no longer enslaved to sin and spiritual bondage, shouldn't the gospel also break our bondage to things? Shouldn't the gospel also free us from bondage to money? Where that we see it as a gift from God, we see it as we are stewards of it, that God's given it to us, we're to hold it in open hands for the use and call that he brings to us. Whatever opportunities arise, it's there for us to share. So they were available to them for sharing. You see, they began selling their property and possessions. And the two root words here basically just mean anything that's purchased or acquired. And secondly, anything that we own, no matter how it comes to be our own. So it covers everything. They offered all they acquired or owned as available. But available for what? Available for sharing. They were sharing them with all. Notice in verse 45. And since they had all things in common, nothing was excluded from the stewardship and the sharing. So everything they owned, everything they had was available for sharing. But they weren't just sharing. They were sharing how? Sacrificially. And how was that sacrificial sharing done? Was the verse say, as anyone might have need. The sharing was not capricious. It was not unwisely given away. It was not indiscriminately wasted. This sharing was done purposeful. It was done to meet needs as they arose. And how practical were these works? They were very practical, weren't they? Because the results were unbelievable. Because Acts chapter 4 verse 34 tells us that there was not a needy person among them. Let that sink in. Here's a congregation of 20,000 people who don't even live there. And not one of them has a need. Can you imagine that? Do you know of a church that has, well, forget if you know of a church that has 20,000 people. Do you know of a church that, doesn't, that has no one in it with a, that doesn't have a need? Can you imagine what kind of church that was that not one of them had a need that went unmet? So, did God's principles work pretty good? Absolutely. Acts 4.35 tells of a specific way in which this need was met where people took property and they sold it and then they brought the proceeds and gave it to the apostles which you know, were the foundational gifts to the church which were replaced by pastors. But... They brought the gifts that they received from the sale of their property and gave it to them, and then they distributed them as needed to meet needs in the body. And there's even, you know, a positive and a negative example that follows. You know, the positive example of Barabbas, uh, Barabbas, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and then the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. So holy, so distinct was this church in its set-apartness and it's fuel of the gospel, that the consequences for not doing this right were severe, weren't they? Because no one was commanded to take their property and sell it. And if they did do it, no one was commanded to give all the proceeds away. But if you did it, you better do it honestly and in the right motivation, and that being of grace and gratitude. Because if you didn't, in this case, Ananias and Sapphira, what? They were struck dead. The holiness, the purity of that church struck them dead 
because of their insincerity of what they did. So, if we go to the next screen, let's summarize all this up. Make some points so we can make application. What are the basic principles that leap out of these texts for us to learn about what I call the sharing of the saints? The sharing of the saints. What are basic principles that we can pull out of this that make application to us as individuals and to us as a local fellowship, as a local Christian community? First principle, genuine generosity. Historic Christianity has always been marked by genuine generosity. No motive is ever perfectly pure, and no practice is ever perfectly consistent. But nonetheless, Christian community has always been generous. But again, back to the first illustrations I had, how is it distinguished from unregenerate generosity? There is generosity from unregenerate people. How is that different from that of regenerate, born-again, truly believing people? First, genuine gratitude to God in the motivation. We are eager and anxious to give because we see that we've been given to. So we have genuine gratitude to God in our motivation. We see that we've been given to far more than we can ever give back. Why we give is because God has given to us. And we give from what God... What, what do we give that we didn't receive? What, what do we give that we made? What do we give that we earned? Nothing. We give from what we've received, and we receive that by grace from God. So, genuine gratitude is the first principle of genuine generosity, and it has to be genuine in our motivation. Why we give is because God has given to us, and because we are grateful for it. 2 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. <clears throat> Acts 4.33, which I read, says, Abundant or great grace was upon them all. So genuine grace, genuine gratitude is essential element of genuine generosity. Second principle is genuine grace. Genuine grace toward others in the method. We're joyful to give graciously in the same manner we've been given to. How does God give to us? Graciously. How should we give to others? Graciously. Our motives should follow our example. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Second principle. Next screen. Guards for generosity. No doubt, a church this generous, and in fact, if I might say so, I believe Grace Fellowship is one of the most generous churches I've ever been a part of. If you look at things that have happened in this body that arise to meet needs like Micah's Hope or Micah Fleming, Dave Sweeney, I've never been a part of a more generous body in all my life. But when people are that generous, isn't there opportunity for abuse? Isn't there opportunity for people to take advantage of you? Have you ever been taken advantage of in your generosity? Has this church ever been taken advantage of in its generosity? Of course. And people say, well, if we give it in the right motive, and um, then if they take it in the wrong motive, that's on them. No. It's sin for us to be bad stewards of God's benevolence. God has given us principles 
to guard or safeguards against abuse of his benevolence or his sharing of the saints within the body. There are at least four of them. I'll run through these quickly. You'll recognize them. The first one is the principle of work. Paul told the church at Thessalonica, he says, you know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because that we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Listen to this. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that among you are some that are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Paul sets himself up as an example. He had the right to support, but he didn't take it. He worked day and night, laboring harder than anybody, so that he wouldn't be an undue burden on the church. Do we not know of cases where the gospel is not received properly because those who proclaim it are not respectable? But likewise, don't we know of cases where people want donations, but what they really need is discipline? They want a handout, but what they really need is work. Work is the principle to safeguard the charity of the church. Um, the church is not to support those who claim to be a believer, but yet refuse to work. In fact, the verse 15 goes on to say that we're to take special note of that person, do not associate with him, so he would be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Ephesians 4.28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. This safeguard is actually turned positive here, right? Because God's saying what? Look, if you don't work, how do you participate in this work of the church? If you don't work and earn things and own things so that you have things with which to share, then how are you going to participate in the sharing of the saints? You miss out on God's best for what he has for the body. So work is not only a responsibility, but it's a privilege by which we can participate in this grace of God. Second safeguard of genuine generosity is the principle of family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Responsibility for the needs of those in need begins where? At home. The church is not the first resort. The church is the second resort. The head of the family bears the initial responsibility for meeting the needs under his or her, her care. And isn't this strong language? I mean, don't we get uncomfortable when we hear we actually deny our faith when we don't meet the needs of our own family? That's, that's pretty severe language. Third principle, the principle of condition. 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives conditions for which to do support, in this case for a widow. 1 Timothy 5 verse 9 says a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. 
having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So the third guard of the church's generosity is that there are conditions for benevolence cases. We don't give out benevolence like Santa Claus, just indiscriminately. There are conditions that have to be met. This passage even goes on to give conditions for younger widows. So the primary focus is that we're responsible stewards in what we give out. And then the fourth is the principle of oversight. As we read, where did they bring these proceeds to? They laid them at the feet of the apostles. In other words, their leadership had responsibility to give out what was given so that it was done appropriately. And often God uses that. Not that leadership is infallible, but he uses that to expose wrong motives, doesn't he? Or to uh, disclose wrong intentions. Um, but back to the big principles of generosity. Next screen, gospel-driven generosity. And this is really the heart of what I have to say today. This is most important. Generosity must be gospel-driven, or it is not true regenerate generosity. Notice that the energy fueling these early believers arose out of their faith in the gospel. They didn't have programs. They didn't have knowledge. They hadn't been to seminars. They hadn't been to a church growth movement. George Barna didn't come speak to them. They believed the gospel. It was enough for them to know that the good hand and the gracious heart of God had touched them. And as such, they were ecstatic in the spirit. They were amazed by the gracious act of God upon their life. Verse 33 of Acts 4 says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, such that great grace was upon them all. The gospel is powerfully proclaimed specifically in the gospel, even more specifically here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice the hard link between the gospel and the liberality of contributions in the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. You see how there's a hard link there between the confession of the gospel and the contribution in liberality. So what's my point? My point is we believe that the gospel is the power of God and salvation, right? We believe that. But do we just believe it in our doctrine, or do we believe it in our practice? Are our practical works, like sharing, like generosity, do they exhibit the fact that we believe the gospel is the power of God? The vitality of our generosity and sharing is a function of the brightness with which the flame of the gospel burns within our souls. The vitality of our generosity and sharing is a function of the brightness with which the flame of the gospel burns within our hearts and souls. If we fully understand the gospel, 
then will we not be like these people in our sharing? Will we not be like these people in our generosity? Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, it seems, back to what I said earlier about the church being for believers, it seems God has designed the church for believers. But am I saying that we shouldn't have love for unbelievers? Well, of course, that's not what I'm saying. But God, in his miraculous and all-wise plan, has designed such that when the church functions as a church, as a body, that it adorns the gospel, as is said in Titus. The gospel is adorned with our works. Besides, I want you to think about it this way. Um, if, if you heard the gospel proclaimed from a church that didn't act like it believed the gospel, would you want to believe the gospel? How many times have you heard people say, well, if Jesus, if, if that guy represents Jesus, I don't have anything to do with it. How many times have you heard people say, if that church represents the gospel, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But don't you think God used the fact that these 120 people were functioning the way they were functioning to adorn the gospel so that when the gospel was proclaimed, they didn't reject it, but they believed it because it was believable by the way they loved each other, by the way they shared with each other. Isn't that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say that when he was talking to his disciples in the upper room, did he say that they'll know by your love for the unbelievers that you're my disciples? Did he say that? No. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for who? One another. So the way we bring people into the gospel is by loving each other. So what was, what was the result? The first disciples, 120. By noon, they're 3,120. By the end of the day, they're 20,000. And by 270 years later, by the end of the third century, Christians who were non-existent in the Roman world prior to this, non-existent. A total estimated population is 60 million in the Roman world. Six million were estimated to be Christians. So one-tenth of the population had become Christian. Pretty successful. Pretty good platform. Last principle. Next screen, glory and generosity. Did you remember how the verse I read from 2 Corinthians started? They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Isn't it more than appropriate to end this way? That the glory of God is the purpose behind everything. You know, sola deo gloria, sola deo gloria is not just a cute phrase for our church. It should be our heart cry. Everything we do should be based on the glory of God. Um, as we're bonded together in Christian community, we share with the saints in genuine generosity only for the glory of God. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So, I pray that God will grant me and this church the genuine generosity that was manifest in this first church so that God's gospel may be proclaimed with power and receive with grace and for the glory of God alone.
In closing, I want to read a report that was written by a second century philosopher named Aristides. Um, you might wonder, how did the world receive this body that grew up in Jerusalem that sprang into existence on this miracle Sunday? This report was lit, written less than 100 years after the events uh, of Pentecost, and it was written for the, a report to the Emperor Hadrian. Listen to what he says. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. They refuse to worship strange gods, and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find property in their midst and they do not have spare food, I'm sorry, if they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and for the food and drink they offer thanksgiving. If any righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice and thank God and escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, they praise God. If it dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for one who has passed through the world without sins. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins, they grieve bitterly and sorrow as over one who is about to meet his doom. Such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians, and such is their conduct. So, in closing, I ask you, what is the conduct of Grace Fellowship? What report, if an unbelieving philosopher observed us individually and corporately, what kind of report would he give about us? I've been very convicted studying this this week, thinking about what kind of report would be given about me. Do I really hold everything in open hands? Do I really love the body in such a way that the passion of the gospel fuels me to share in any way? Has God not only broke me free by the gospel from eternal punishment and the eternal consequences of sin, but has he also set me free from the sin of the love of things in this life? Very soul-searching things to consider. So, what about us? What about me? What about you? Genuine generosity. Last screen. Here's, here's the takeaway. Genuine generosity.
which is out of gratitude to God and for the glory of God, is an evidence of the grace of God at work within a congregation. Genuine generosity out of gratitude to God and for His glory alone is evidence of the grace of God at work within a congregation. So I pray that we may be that congregation.